Let's turn to the Bible, Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Let's hear God's word. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, And with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Oh, good morning. The Sunday after Easter is often thought to be a bit of a low time in church life, but this morning we have an orchestra, massive choir, college church, isn't it amazing? Uh, If you are married or uh, perhaps you're in a dating relationship and you have been for a while, um, you may be able to relate to this, but if if you are married, you will know what I mean. Sometimes in marriage, there comes a moment when you have been in a very busy uh, season of life and you look back and maybe you've got children, young children, and you suddenly realize that you haven't actually been on a date for Years, you know, maybe not years, but at least months. And Rochelle, my wife and I, um, a few years ago, we, we've got young children, and a few years ago we, we were on vacation, and we, we suddenly realized that, you know, we haven't actually been out, you know, as in outside, um, meeting real adults, you know, together um, for quite a long time. And so we thought, well, it's, it's about time to go out on a date, quote-unquote, a date, you see. And so what do you do? Well, you go and see a movie, at least that's what we thought. And um, I'm not really someone who keeps up with the latest movies all the time, so I just picked a movie that I thought looked like uh, a chick flick. <laughs> and, um, and I decided this on the basis of the leading actors. They were two people who appear sometimes in romances and one in romantic comedies, and that was all I knew. So there we were, we went, and we were sitting in the movie theater, and my arm was around my wife, and we're ready for a nice romantic evening. Uh, by the way, the movie is called What Lies Beneath. <laughs> and, um, well, we had no idea what lies beneath. And so I'm sitting there, and, you know, the first half an hour of that movie is, is fine. It's quite nice. And then it began to 
turn. And uh, then it really got scary. And I think the only reason why we didn't walk out, I don't recommend the movie, by the way, at Cottage Church, it's, it's, um, it is scary. Uh, the only reason I didn't think we didn't walk out was because we were so shocked, we were sort of rooted to the spot, you know, <laughs> like a deer in headlights. It was just... And we got run over. <laughs> and of course, went back home and checked on the internet and read the reviews and thought, well, it was a scary movie, but we had, <laughs> we had no idea what lies beneath. Uh, when you come to a topic like guilt um, pastorally and a psalm like Psalm 130, which is one of the great penitential psalms, uh, sometimes there are thought to be seven of these penitential psalms in the, in the book of Psalms, in the salt tree, the book of Psalms, um, when you come to this topic and this subject and this kind of psalm, there are lots of difficulties with it. You see, there are people here who always feel guilty. You know, um, you feel guilty because you ate too much ice cream last night. Or, you know, you went to Cold Stone Creamery and you had, not I like it, but I love it, or I've got to have it, and you feel really bad. And, or you feel, you feel guilty because your parents had unreasonable expectations uh, and you never feel that you live up to them. And so you have this ongoing sense of disappointment, of guilt. So when you come to a topic like this, there are people who are in that category. And then there are people who never really seem to feel particularly guilty. And uh, you sometimes, you and I, wonder whether they should. A, a little bit, at least. And I don't mean sort of people who are psychopathic. I just mean... Uh, people who um, don't seem to live in uh, these kind of extreme guilt feelings. They just um, sail through life and always think they're on the right side, even if they're not. And so when we think about guilt, we have to move beyond the superficial and actually get to what lies beneath, to the real stuff. And you see, this psalm is not really, I mean, there are strong feelings here, but it's not really talking about feelings of guilt. It's talking about what a, a criminologist might term forensic guilt. It's talking about actual guilt, whether you feel it or not, you see. It's not talking about subjective, psychological feelings of guilt. It's talking about a de declaration of guilt and, and, and then the appropriate feelings that go with that. And actually, when you get that right, it becomes very freeing. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look first at what the psalm says about guilt, then what it says about God and his incredible mercy. And that's going to lead us out of false guilt to praise and freedom. And then we're going to finally look at what that when we get that reality, what that does to us in terms of the future. So the end of the psalm finishes with hope. And of course, guilt is all about the past. You feel stuck, perhaps. You can't get over something you did in the past. But redemption is all about the future. It changes you for the future. 
So that, that's where we're going. We're going to look at guilt, God, and then the grace that comes in that changes us for the future. So first then, let's look at guilt and look down with me at the first couple of verses, which is what they're about. So he says, out of the depths I cry to you. You know, what lies beneath the real, the real stuff? Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And then he says, Lord, hear my voice to, the, to my pleas uh, and all that. Now, what I want you to see about these first two verses is that they're not talking about social guilt. They're not talking about uh, our feelings of guilt. They're talking about a fact of guilt. Nor are they talking about social guilt. You know, I've committed a faux pas. Um, I've done something that others, other people around me, important people perhaps, don't approve of what I have done. Um, no, it, what it's talking about, isn't it, is about me and God. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Now, all the, the penitential psalms have this theme, and most famously, Psalm 51 says, uh, you may remember, uh, David, who's done a lot of bad stuff, murder, adultery, for instance, uh, then says, Against you, you only have I sinned. And so what the Bible is saying is though we can harm other people, though we can sin against other people, ultimately, when we're talking about guilt, what we're talking about is something objective, whether you feel it or not, and something about me and God. Uh, it is a theological guilt. So this is, of course, part of the whole Bible story. We were created good, but we have fallen. Genesis 1 and 2, then Genesis 3. And then the whole story of the Bible, which is this psalm tells in, uh, in Genesis, in miniature. This, this psalm, in a microscopic way, tells that whole story. Genesis 1 and 2, created good. Genesis 3, fallen. And then the story of redemption, which we're going to get to when we get to the, the end of the psalm. Who's going to redeem us? But what the Bible is saying is that my personal standing before God, because God is holy, He's pure, I am not righteous. This is a constant theme of the Bible. The penitential psalms, um, Romans 1 through to 3, uh, there is no one righteous, not even one. So this isn't just this psalmist who's, you know, eaten too much ice cream on Saturday night. This is this psalmist as an archetypal person with a healthy sense of guilt describing reality. Out of the depths I cry to you. So there's that aspect of guilt. But then there's also here... Um, the sense that this guilt actually is a good thing. Now, guilt is not always a good thing. Uh, Paul, the Bible, makes this distinction also in a number of places. Most easily, Paul describes this distinction as between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to joy because you call upon God and He forgives you and it leads to redemption and a new life and the future. Worldly sorrow just leads to depression and misery, right? 
But, but true guilt, this objective standing, whether I feel it or not, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that's a good thing. And you get that hinted here in, in, in this phrase, out of the depths. Uh, de profundis, sometimes this psalm is called because of that phrase, depths. Out of the depths. I think it's referring to the reality of Israel when they went through the Red Sea with the water all around them. And he's imagining himself in that place. And of course, what happened? They were saved. So when you realize that you're in the depths, theologically, it's a good thing because you know where that story is going. It goes to the promised land. You see. And you get the same thing with the phrase, let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. That's pretty much a straight quotation from uh, Solomon's prayer of commissioning at the uh, temple that uh, he built under God's command in the Old Testament. And he had a prayer, a long prayer of commissioning there. And this quotation there is one of the key things that he prays, that is that God would incline his ear to God's people when they prayed uh, the temple for mercy, that he would be attentive, this key word that is from that place and only here repeated, that he would here be attentive to their plea for mercy, that when his people repent, he would forgive their sins, he would come and heal their land. So this sense, this conviction of the Holy Spirit, of who I am as a person, is a good thing. If it's this real objective guilt, because of where the story goes, it goes to redemption. God will rescue his people from the depths. He did, he will. God will listen to their repentance. He has promised to do so. So if you are sensing this morning as I preach or you've come this morning thinking this that you actually are guilty if you take that to God that's the best thing it's a great sign of the work of the spirit in your life and and if you've never felt like this then I'm concerned there's no unrighteous not even one so there's guilt And then there's God. Now look down then at the next part of the psalm. It goes on, verses 3 and 4, this is. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Well, given the fact that we are all iniquitous, we have all sinned, you know, we may not have committed murder, but we have hated. We may not have committed adultery, but we have lusted. We may not have disobeyed our parents in a terrible way, but we are covetous of someone else's achievements. This is all true. And that being the case, if God was not a merciful God, no one could stand. Well, that's clear. Then here comes this amazing verse. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. This is a strange way to finish that phrase. With you there is forgiveness that you may be adored, maybe. With you there is forgiveness so I can get away with doing it again, maybe. But that you may be feared. 
It's a strange phrase, and a lot of people have struggled with understanding it, and even some of the ancient translations of the, uh, of the Hebrew attempted various interpretations of this in their translations. Um, what, what does this really mean? Why, because with there is forgiveness, does that lead to me fearing God? Here's what it means. God is the kind of God... This is his nature, who is slow to anger, abounding in love. With him there is forgiveness. Now, why does that mean you're in church this morning? Why does that mean that you're going to um, serve him? Why does that mean that you're set free To worship him in joy. Why does that mean that your ears are really open now? Because if you like, if you underline the word you, with you there is forgiveness. This is a very, very important point because it gives the lie to one of the cardinal doctrines of our age, which is if you are feeling guilty, what you need to do is to... Let's all say it together. Forgive yourself. Right? But if we think like that, what are we really doing? We are dethroning God. Because ultimately then, who I've sinned against is not God, it's against me. I cannot forgive myself if my sin is against God, not against myself. Nietzsche has a wonderful phrase, this is part of the whole culture of our age, and Frederick Nietzsche has a wonderful phrase where he describes how if we are saying that actually it is our own forgiveness that counts, then we are making ourselves God-like. That's right. What we're saying if we're saying we've got to forgive ourselves, I've just got to forgive myself, is we're saying I'm God and I decide who is forgiven. But with God, underline the you, with you there is forgiveness. So the person we need forgiveness from, it's God. Uh, Luther has a great phrase that describes this. He says that if we thought that it was our own merits, that is, good things that we could do, if we thought it was our own merits that would lead to our forgiveness then we would live with the presumption of merits. Otherwise, what do we need God for? Then I'm God, because I forgive myself. Do you see? Or look at it like this. Who, who is the one who loves most? This is Jesus' illustration. So there's Jesus. He's at dinner. And a woman of ill repute comes in and begins to weep at his feet. And she takes her hair and she uses her hair to dry his feet, having wet them with her tears. And all the Pharisees and the religious leaders are shocked, of course, because she's a woman of ill repute. And Jesus, knowing this, explains. And he says, who is the one who loves most? The one who's been forgiven little? She who's been forgiven much loves 
much. So if you want to go out and get people to serve God, here's how you do it. You preach the free grace of God. God loves to forgive. It's it's only in him, but he loves to forgive. All that what lies beneath stuff that bubbles up in other ways, if we're not honest, that we end up being angry at our parents, we end up being angry with our friends or our spouse or our girlfriend or whatever, we um, give in to obsessive compulsive behavior, we, we plug ourselves in all the time to iTunes or the entertainment industry to avoid conviction. All this what lies beneath that comes up in other ways, workaholic behavior. With God there's forgiveness. Abounding in love. With him is forgiveness. And when you get that, the whole game changes. Suddenly God is no longer the hard task master. He's the one you will do anything for. He forgave you. You're his. Finished. Always. Every part of you. Every aspect of your life is now his. Why? With him is forgiveness. It is the fundamental foundational need of every human being. That's why there are so many psychologists. But we've got to get to what lies beneath. This story of creation, fall, and then redemption. Now we're coming then to the end of, end of the psalm, and it's from verses 5 to 8. And this is, in a sense, the foundational truth of Christianity, just, play, uh, just applied to a particular aspect of, uh, of common experience, guilt. What's that really about? What lies beneath that? How do we deal with that? So Christianity is not about a guilt trip It's not the scarlet letter of puritanical fantasy. It's about redemption. It's about actually speaking a word about the foundational, most significant, de profundis, the depths of life, and then moving forward. Here's how we move forward. So verses 5 through to 8. And again, this is a little surprising. So it begins with waiting I wait for the Lord. Now, that's not how a, a typical evangelistic sort of um, crusade, if you like, would end at this point. It would just say, come to the altar, pray the prayer. But here, verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. That's just a, a form of emphasizing the same truth. And in his word, I hope. Now, here... He's applying one of the first principles of healthy Christian living, which is to set my feelings on the basis of the facts of God's word. And we're going to return to that. In his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. He says it again. Then he has an image of what that means. It's like a a guard all through the night waiting for the morning, like watchman for the morning. He repeats that. And then he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. So here he's returning to uh, God's people, the corporate entity. 
It's not just him and God, that, that's the conviction, but when he wants healing, it happens in the family of the church. Oh, Israel, we speak this truth of the redemption to each other. Oh, Israel, I'm saying it to you, I'm going to need you to say it to me. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Why? For with the Lord there is steadfast love, as with you there is forgiveness, this covenant chesed love, and with him, this is the bit I'm going to emphasize at the end, is plentiful redemption. That's a wonderful phrase. Not just enough redemption, but more than enough. Plentiful redemption. So however bad that was, however wrong that was, however bad you feel, there's more than enough redemption. Plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now why is, this I think is the most important question that I've wrestled with. Uh, I first preached this psalm, it must have been a good 15 years ago. And the part that I have been wrestling with when I've ever considered this psalm is, is, is partly the verse 4, with you is forgiveness, therefore you're feared. But then also this part. Why is this now future? Why, why is he like a watchman, a guard in the middle of the night, hoping for the morning? And there are different ways of putting it together. Here's where I've landed. Guilt is about the past. If you find someone who's stuck in the past, chances are, de profundis, what lies beneath, guilt lies beneath. Redemption is about the future. Here is how I think this works. This word redemption is a bit of an echo word. It's repeated in the Bible at a number of different places to emphasize the truth in a growing way and for us to listen to it. So redemption means paying the price. And in particular, it means, this is how Moses preached it in his uh, lengthy sermon, the book of Deuteronomy, it means the redemption that Israel experienced when they were redeemed from Egypt, from the place of slavery. So it means paying the price to set God's people free from slavery. And Moses preaches that concept. He uses this word frequently in Deuteronomy to, to emphasize that you are a redeemed people. Therefore, he's saying, live like redeemed people. In other words, with you there is forgiveness. Wow, soak that in. Then you'll do anything for God. You are a redeemed people. Therefore, live like redeemed people. Therefore, act in redemptive ways to other people. Don't take advantage of uh, your workers or your servants. Be a redemptive force yourself. So that concept of uh, echoes, that concept of redemption echoes from the truth of being set free from Egypt, through Moses preaching it, through uh, even small things like a, an ox that uh, inadvertently the owner of the ox doesn't know that it is going to kill and he ends up killing someone and the ox needs to be what? Redeemed. And the price needs to be paid. Or Jonathan, when he uh, fights, when he should not have fought against the enemy at one point, he is redeemed by the enthusiasm of those around him and the bravery of his, of his deeds. There's this 
redemption echo. What does this really mean? Well, there's Egypt. And then, of course, we come to the New Testament. And what, Je- what does Jesus say in the famous text, Mark 10, 45? Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, a redemption for many, to pay the price. It's an echo word. It's a thread you can follow through Scripture. Uh, Paul argues, saying, you are sold under sin. You are a slave under sin. But the redemption is in Christ Jesus. By his blood, Ephesians chapter 1. He's made a curse for you that you may be redeemed, Galatians 3. Redemption. If you've, um, perhaps you've been to Europe and you've been to one of the great cathedrals there. Massive. Makes the echo in this room look really small. Massive cathedral. And you have this echo, echo. Redemption, redemption. Redeemed, redeemed. Exodus. Psalm 130. The blood of Jesus, the price. Not paid to the devil, but God. Whenever you forgive someone, you internalize the hurt that you want to do to someone else. And instead of lashing out, you take it inwardly. And God in Christ at the cross atoned by paying the price himself. His heart broke paying the price. He redeemed He paid the price to forgive. And then, of course, the final redemption to come. So you're no longer living in the past. If you get this, you're now living for the future. You can look at death, you can look at tomorrow with hope. Uh, An illustration I sometimes used of this is uh, three men walking, it's called the faith, facts, feelings train. I've used it a number of times. Don't think I've used it at Cottage Church, but places where I've used it before, they remind me of it. So I think it helps. Three men walking along a wall. And you have faith, facts, and feelings. And faith in that order, so there's facts at the front, then faith, then feelings. As long as faith keeps his eyes on facts, the fact of redemption, then they just keep on walking. When faith turns around and looks at feelings, oh, I feel guilty, then he falls off the wall. Redemption is an echo word. Because, in other words, the way to live guiltlessly, living free from guilt, is to give attention to what God has done to redeem you. Because he has redeemed He will redeem. Because he did rescue Israel from Egypt, he will send Jesus. Because he did send Jesus and the price was paid, he will return. Gives us confidence for the future. Or or if that's not working for you, maybe the illustration that the psalmist uses will. What does he say it's like? 
It's like watchmen waiting for the morning, like a guard waiting for the morning. See, if you're still living in, in guilt, there are only two possibilities. One is you haven't done what the first part of the psalm does, which is, out of the depths I cry to you. It's God who needs to forgive me, and I'm looking to him. You either haven't done that, or you haven't done what the second part of the psalm is doing, which is looking back to the redemption and therefore confidence of the future redemption to come. Waiting with eagerness, with hope, that is a sure and certain hope for the future, not stuck in the past. And the illustration here really helps with that. So, you know, there's a guard waiting for the morning. Maybe it would actually help you to enter into that experience. If you're still living in guilt, maybe you cry out to the Lord, you focus on the cross, what Jesus has done, the redemption. And then maybe you live what the psalmist here has lived or is referring to. That is, get up early. Seriously, I'm encouraging you to do this. This is an issue for you. Get up early. Get up three in the morning, four in the morning. (laughs) Sounds fun. Get a warm blanket. If you've got a deck, sit out on the deck. At least look through the window where you can see the sun rise. And wait. And then if it's a nice day, Watch the sunrise. That's what it's like to live guilt-free. For tomorrow. Free from the past. Now you're living for the future. With you is the forgiveness, therefore you're feared. Uh, Now you're going to say, okay, I'm going to be a missionary. Because I know my guilt's been taken care of. Am I good enough to be a missionary? Of course I'm not. But I've been forgiven, therefore I can be. Now you're going to be a pastor. Am I good enough to be a pastor? Of course you're not. But you've been forgiven. Now you're living for the future. Now you're going to get involved serving in the church. Am I good enough to serve in the church? Of course you're not. But you've been forgiven. And now you're living for the future. Now you're going to give everything you have to God. Are you good enough to give everything you have to God? No, of course not. But then the sun rises. And it's for tomorrow that you are living guilt-free. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that would be our experience. We pray, Father, that we would live in joy, not trite cheeriness, but like a watchman waiting for the morning. Father, I pray that the sun would rise 
on the guilt that people here feel. And that you would release us from the path by your Holy Spirit. Bring your word to bear, Father. And release us from the past to enable us to live for the future. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.